Hello everyone and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Trent Nestler on. He has 24 years of experience as a sports PT and is the founder and developer of the V-Perform AMI ACL Play It Safe and Run Safe programs and is the co-founder of Combat Athlete Science Institute. He's also the president of Rebound Vitality, where he works with first responders in helping injury prevention and senior contributor to Sports Ed TV and was previously the national director of sports innovation for Select Medical. Trent has worked with athletes ranging from youth to the professional levels and does extensive research in the field of injury prevention, movement assessment, and sports performance. Trent, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, love, um, love speaking to alumnus. <laughs> yeah, we're both NAU alum. Yeah. Trent, could you be able to introduce yourself a little bit and share to the audience some of your background? Sure. So first of all, I'm a physical therapist. I started practice uh, after graduating from NAU uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And really within about the first year, you know, I was kind of very motivated to do more with my profession. So I uh, actually uh, opened a clinic, started a clinic in the uh, West Valley, started as a small clinic. And we actually grew that clinic uh, when I left Phoenix. Um, we had uh, 12 clinicians, 35 staff members total, and a uh, just a, under 11,000 square foot facility that we did a lot of sports medicine. And that's really where I really got first interested in uh, ACLs. I was seeing a lot of ACL reconstructions on any given day, you know, because we had 12 therapists, we may see, you know, 10 ACLs come in, uh, post-op ACLs. So we were just getting a huge volume of ACL reconstructions and really got me interested in trying to prevent it, you know, trying to, I knew as I was watching these kids at their discharge, that they had movement patterns that intuitively put them at risk for ACLs. Um, so I actually went back to school, did my doctorate in back at that day, um, it was the first class NAU had for the DPT. And uh, so we were able to really tailor um, our DPT. And so um, I got to really tailor mine to focus on biomechanics and motor learning, which really allowed me to get a better understanding of truly how to change motor plan and change movement patterns. And then I started on a path to, long story short, fast forward, 2017, we actually commercialized a wearable sensor technology to the market that's now in over 450 facilities across the U.S. and has been used to assess over 29,000 athletes. And so, you know, the beauty of the system and the way we built it out, it's um, we are learning so much about human movement now. And more, more importantly, how do we actually change it? Because you can actually go back and see, did this, did this intervention actually change um, the, the factors that I wanted to change from a movement perspective. So it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's been, you know, a journey for sure. I mean, it took me 18 years to bring that to the market through persistence and a lot of heartache and a lot of loss and a lot, a lot of mistakes. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a fun journey for sure. 
No, yeah, it sounds like you've, you've done a lot during that time. And I'm excited to be able to talk about that and all the things that you learned throughout that time to be able to bring a product that you're so passionate about to the market to be able to help athletes, but also just the general population in improving their quality of life after an injury like an ACL injury or any other lower kinetic change injury. Yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of just a little bit, like what got you into PT and could you explain a little bit, you kind of already started that career path, but how did you get introduced to PT to begin with? And yep. why did you choose that as your career? You know, it's very interesting. I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason, you know, that it's funny because, uh, in my PT interview, David Arnall was, uh, uh, one of the professors at that time. And he did, he did my first interview. And he asked me, and I didn't know at the time that he was a very religious man, but he asked me, he said, you know, why do you want to be PT? And I said, quite honestly, because I feel like this is the path that God has put me on. And it all started in 1979, December 26, 1979, when my father broke his neck. And we were in a foreign country and uh, we were on a beach in a third world country. And my father was hit by a wave, suffered a burst fracture of C4, 5, and 6. And uh, obviously an immediate medical emergency. Um, we taped him to a surfboard, put him in the back of a, uh, uh, somebody's station wagon and drove him an hour and a half to a dirt covered, dirt floored hospital where they ended up putting a halo on him with no anesthesia. And so from, from that experience, I was 10 years old at the time, from that experience and seeing his progress through rehab seeing how he went through the rehab process and how much a PT impacted our lives as a family. Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do, you know? And so uh, very early on in my, my life, I was, I was driven to be a PT. Um, and ironically, um, fast forward, you know, I've been married almost 30 years and my wife and I, our first child was a handicapped child. And so I, I'm a firm believer that God puts you in a path for a certain reason and, uh, you know, for me, it was, you know, my father kind of started the process and then my daughter uh, is ending the process, you know, and it's really, it's helped us in a lot of different ways had I not been a PT. That is awesome. You know, it's really cool that being able to experience someone so close to you and so personal, have that experience and see their progress. I feel like a lot of us in PT may have gotten into it because of our personal injury history or something like that, but to be able to be on the side and being so close to somebody and see that as so special to see. So that's really, really cool. So with that, what made, so you, as you said, you went to NAU, you opened up, you opened up your own practice. Did you start right away opening up your first practice or did you, were you a staff therapist first or how did that no. all work? What, yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so I, I was a staff therapist first. Um, and I was in that practice for um, about a year. And um, um, at that time, uh, Physiotherapy Associates was very big in, in the Phoenix market. We did a ton of sports medicine in that market. And uh, one of our regional directors approached me and said, hey, you know, I've got this opportunity in the West Valley, you know, to take over, you know, a clinic that's not doing so well. Um, at that time, we had another PT. And uh, he said, you know, you seem motivated. You seem, you seem like the, the right kind of leader you know, I think, I think you'd be a good fit for this. And so I ended up taking over that practice. It was a small practice. You know, I, I kind of was able to build a name for myself in that market. And then we just, we grew, we grew a lot. We ended up moving our clinic. Um, I ended up building a clinic actually 
across the street from the Seattle Mariners uh, spring training complex. And it was right as the spring training complex went up. So we got in there at a very early time and we started seeing a ton of baseball players. And so, you know, building relationship with the, the baseball teams out there for spring training, you know, it just, it was, it was an awesome experience. You know, we had a, we just, we had a really good referral sources, you know, in that time in Phoenix, you know, you had 10 competitors within a couple of miles of you. And so you had to be at the top of your game. And so, you know, I, I really stress to our team constantly being on top of the research. I can't, I, I can't tell you how many times I would go into an orthopedic surgeon and surprise them when I would cite a paper that was just published last month, you know, and about this is what's driving my practice pattern. Did you see this paper that was published last month? And they'd be surprised by that. And it would, it would automatically build that, that rapport and that respect, mutual respect. Oh, that I love that because I feel like that's something that's so important to be constantly engaged in learning um, that as physical therapists, research is constantly coming up to be able to be on top of that. And I feel like you are one of the, the leading people in our field to be able to have that information to then address that and implement that into, into our treatment patterns and how we're doing that. Um, so with that, why, why, what motivated you to become an entrepreneur? And what were some of the big challenges when you first decided? You mentioned the competition in close proximity. What other challenges did you experience? You know, I think the biggest challenge for me is because I worked in a, in a corporate setting really up until July of this year. And so, you know, trying to be an entrepreneur in, 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 in explore your entrepreneurial ship uh, within a, in a corporate setting is very challenging to, to do um, because, because in most corporate settings, and I, I worked for Select Medical, which if you don't know anything about Select Medical, they have 1,800 facilities across the U.S., and it's a $5 billion company. And so it's, it's the behemoth of physical therapy. That being said, you know, uh, is, as an employee, if I develop something, the company by contract owns it. And so, you know, I was very fortunate that, you know, for the EMI, I had developed that. Um, prior to uh, joining Select and uh, put that in my contract that I owned the IP associated with that and everything around it. And so that, that you know, there, there's, a, there's the legality issues that you have to navigate. I think the biggest challenge for me, quite honestly, has been <laughs> the losses. Like, you know, how I can't tell you how many times I've failed. You know, and I think as an entrepreneur, you just have to feel comfortable with the fact that you're going to fail because that's the only way you learn. I will tell you the EMI, what it is today um, is what it is today because I failed for 10 years, bringing it to the market. You know um, you know, the very first version of it failed because of the technology. The second version of it failed because I got into a bad, a bad business relationship. I wrote a, I wrote a college textbook that's still out there today that has my name on it that I get nothing from because my old partners own the rights to it. You know, so, you know, I've made stupid moves, you know, um, being naive, I'm a PT, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, a lawyer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a super great at, at developing contracts and negotiating contracts, but you know, that's been part of the challenges is when you fail, quite honestly, I cannot tell you how many times 
when I failed, I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm just, I'm, I'm done. I just, I'm done. I'm, I'm tired of losing. You know, I'm tired. Of, I'm tired of, you know, failing and, you know, being able to pick yourself up and, and rise to the challenge has been huge. Again, the EMI would not be where it's at today. Um, had I not been persistent at it, you know, and I, and I can't tell you how many times it's failed and failed and failed to where it is today, you know? So, yeah, I, I would say the biggest, the biggest thing that I've learned is be okay with failure. Use it as a learning opportunity and pick yourself up by the bootstraps and be persistent, you know, because, because the difference between those who are successful and those who are not is not the fact that you get it right the first time. The people who are successful fail and fail and fail again, but they keep picking themselves back up and eventually they win. No, that, that makes complete sense to me. I feel like the aspect of resiliency and entrepreneurship go hand in hand. I feel very rarely is someone able to, on the first try, get everything right and check all the boxes. So that makes a lot of sense. With the AMI, could you explain to me a little bit about that and enter the audience? Um, sure. How you came about that? You said you were interested in always learning about research. And then now you've kind of become a researcher in that aspect. What made that click right there? Did you sure. all of a sudden decide, oh, I've, I looked into the research so much, I should do research? Kind of explain a little bit of that for us. So, so two things. One is um, I, I, it, the research piece of it came out of a frustration for the research that was out there. You know, I, I come from a strength and conditioning background. I come from a performance background. You know, PT was like the second piece, you know. So, um, and so there were things that was it being done in the research that I just didn't agree with from a strength and conditioning perspective. I'm like, that just doesn't make sense to me. You know, um, and don't, I don't, I don't want to go off on the whole fatigue thing because that's a hot topic about fatigue doesn't really matter. Well, I will tell you in sports performance, it matters and in injury prevention, it matters, but apparently the ACL is immune to fatigue. So all of that said, you know, that that's part of the frustration that I had is to, to prove, to prove, pardon my French, to prove shit wrong. Right. So that's, that's what I, that's what I set out to do. Um, when developing of the EMI, you know, first and foremost, I wanted to make, it's a wearable sensor. We've used a wearable sensor. The sensor has been validated within 3% of a Viacon system. So we get biomechanical lab quality data in literally uh, 15 minutes. But when I was building it out, I knew number one, it had to be valid, right? So that, that was the set criteria, it had to be valid. But the other thing is from a business perspective, I knew that in order for this to be successful in practice, it had to be, you had to be able to use it in mass physicals. So it had to be efficient. So whatever I created had to have a level of efficiency to it, which a lot of technology does not when you do I'll give you an example. We're getting ready to do 1,700 firefighters, 1,700 assessments that we're going to be doing. The largest amount we've done so far is 450, and that took four days. So 1,700 is going to take us about 22 days to do that. That being said, you better be efficient. We got it down to where we can do 124 people a day. So that, that said, you know, you, you've got to be valid. You've got to be efficient. But then the third piece of that is it's got to make business sense, right? So when I was building this out, what I did is I looked at all the different PT codes that are out there to see where this would fall from a billing perspective, because I knew in order for practices to buy it, they had to be able to bill for it. 
And so uh, the, the EMI falls under 97750, physical performance test. And one of the criteria is, is that you have to have a report with it. So I knew when we were building out the system that we had to automate a report so that that report is automatically generated. So you can automatically attach it to your note and you can bill for it. And then the third, <clears throat> the final thing is, is um, teaching people like, what does the information mean? There's so many technologies out there that provide you great information, but it's like, <laughs> what do I do with it, right? So, so what, what, I, what was important to me is that this provide clinically meaningful information, meaning that when I say that word clinically meaningful information, what I mean is that this is something that you can do a clinical action against and change it. And then the final piece of that is, is, is identifying a niche where it fits. And that is right now, the EMI, our biggest market right now is return to sport. You know, after ACL reconstruction, we actually have uh, several multi-site studies going on with uh, its uh, ASMI, which is American Sports Medicine Institute. It's in Birmingham, Alabama with uh, uh, Dr. Andrews and Kevin Wilk. It's their, their research facility. And we have a, a, a really nice study going on where we are actually looking at um, uh, injury or, or uh, our, our, our assessment in what is called the TSK-11, which is a Tampa scale for kinesiophobia 11 form. Um, and it allows us to see if they, pour, if they score poorly on the TSK-11, what does that equate to from a movement perspective? Like what movements do we see that are altered? And if those movements change or improve, does the, the score on the TSK-11 improve? And that's exactly what we're seeing. So, so then from a research perspective, the, the final piece of this was, is that I wanted to make sure that we were capturing every single data point. You know, so the EMI collects 1500 data points for every assessment. We've done 29,000 assessments across the US. We have 39 million data points related to human movement. So when you get data sets that large, what ends up happening is that you start seeing trends. So my end goal is actually to break out how should a 16 year old female soccer player move versus a 16 year old lineman versus a 16 year old running back because they all move differently and what puts one at risk versus another at risk is very different, right? And so my goal is eventually to get a large enough data set so we can break it out by age, by gender, by sport, by position, so that we can see what puts somebody at risk and what doesn't put somebody at risk. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. No, that's great. That's honestly really cool to see how much technology can help provide valuable information for us to be able to assess movements. And then because each, each athlete or each individual will need different like, mobility to be able to help them realize, okay, this is where you're deficient in. This could lead to an injury and identify that and then create a plan of care to properly assess them, properly um, progress them into a position of a, a better quality of movement to help decrease the chances of injury. Or if they did have an injury to help them not return to that, because we know that once they are injured, the chances of them getting re-injured increases so much. What have you kind of found on that side of the research? with injury and re-injury, what have you found and what are you, what kind of research are you doing to help decrease that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so a couple of things, um, and that goes back to the whole, uh, return to sport, uh, protocol. 
you know, part, part of, part of the challenge is, you know, one of the things that we use for return to sport is what's called LSI or limb symmetry index. How does your right side compare to your left side? The problem with that is, is traditionally you would do, you know, a single leg hop for distance, a timed hop, a multi-directional hop, things like that. And if you're at hundred percent symmetry on both sides, boom, you're ready to go. You're, you're good to go. Um, but what about the athlete that when they jump, both knees dive into a valgus at 250 degrees per second, and they do that equally on both sides. So they're hundred percent symmetrical on, on all of those tests that we use, but we all know that they're at great risk for, for an injury, right? So the difference of what our system does is it measures, it measures how much valgus do you get during those, those motions. And it also measures the speed at which you fall into those motions. So we know, for example, that you can take your knee into 20 degrees of valgus and it doesn't hurt if you were just standing there. But if you did that at 250 degrees per second, you would probably blow something, right? And so we know speed matters and we're measuring speed in a meaningful way. So we now actually have speed factors for single leg squat, single leg hop and a multi-directional hop and what those speeds should be for return to play. So we're applying that as a part of our return to play criteria. We've combined that with the TSK 11 um, because Paterno put out some really good papers um, and he showed that uh, if you score a 19 or greater on the TSK 11, you're 13 times more likely to get re-injured. And so we use the TSK 11, we use the AMI, and then we have an A-cell D-cell test that we also do with the technology. So we get your maximal sprint in 30 yards, we get your maximal acceleration and deacceleration, and we look at your limb symmetry, both in uh, stride uh, time uh, on right side, left side, we look at what's called your IPA, initial peak acceleration as, you, as your heel comes into the ground, and then we look at your ground reaction force at mid stance right side to left side. And we use all that information to make return to play decisions. That being said, <clears throat> we do have a retrospective study going on right now out of SSM in St. Louis. SSM is a, it's a large hospital system in St. Louis. Um, they've got about 120 uh, sports medicine, physical therapy clinics uh, out of that market. Um, and we have a two year retrospective study looking at over 200 ACL reconstructions that have all been returned to sport based on our criteria. In the initial, the initial uh, piece of that is, um, is that our re-injury rate is half of what national averages are. And so again, you know, my goal is to constantly be reevaluating what we're doing, reevaluating our criteria. We base our criteria based on, on normative data. So right now, for example, um, the criteria that we use for return to play is based off of 5,000 healthy individuals, division one athletes that we've assessed in what should their frontal plane motion be and what should their speed of those motions be during single limb activities. And we use that as part of our limb symmetry. So our limb symmetry is not just based off of the ability to perform the task, but also what is your biomechanics look like during performance of that task, which to me is much more important. Well, that makes, that makes sense. Exactly. Although they can perform it, are they performing in an efficient manner in a safe manner? Um, and honestly, as someone that's, so I'm still finishing up my final year at NAU for our PT program. It's, I've become so interested in sports medicine and PT, being able to see how much we can use technology to our favor, to 
I'll get all that information and then apply it and something that's yep. so amazing. And so you sharing all of your stuff that you are currently doing, that's really, really impressive and something that I would love to learn more about and, and continue to see the research that you guys are publishing. It sounds like that's going to be so beneficial for us as physical therapists to then apply to our patient populations. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, it goes back to your question about entrepreneurship. I cannot tell you how many times I've failed at studies. And what I mean by that is um, by partnering with the wrong partners on studies. You know, we had one study that we collected uh, three years worth of data um, and they never got the IRB. So we couldn't do anything with the data. Um, I had another study that we, uh, that we did two years of data collection. And then um, I ended up changing employers. Well, that employer owned that data, so they wouldn't let us publish it. So again, these are all things that I've learned along the, along the way. It's hampered me from getting research out there. But, but fortunately, now I've gotten to the point where I have enough data because we have 29,000 assessments. I have enough data that people are seeking us out to do research. Um, and so it's been, it's been a lot better. The studies that we're doing right now, you know, through ASMI, we've got some really cool stuff going. Um, besides the TSK 11 one, we've got a, another retrospective study looking at, uh, uh, we've been doing our, our uh, program with division one volleyball players uh, at a division one school uh, in Alabama now for four years. Uh, and so we're retrospectively looking at uh, healthcare cost, the healthcare cost savings that we've had with the university, um, which is around 43% healthcare savings, which is huge. Um, and again, what I try to do is not just tie in, you know, injuries prevented, but tie in dollar amounts to that because that's what's meaningful for the university. Because if you save a university 250 grand in healthcare costs, that's something that they can turn around and invest that somewhere else. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. We're able to give them the value besides obviously their athletes being healthy and safe, but also the monetary value that they are getting from that definitely is another motivating factor. Yeah. So I had another question for you for a student physical therapist or a new grad out there. What are some important action plans or steps that you have felt um, best prepare someone to get into sports PT? Yep. I would say first and foremost, uh, be up on the research. You know, I, I, I'm looking at my desk. I've literally got seven journals sitting on, I'm seven journals sitting on my desk. I've got a couple of books sitting on my desk. I'm, I'm out of practice for, I've been in practice for 24 years and I still do that today. I, on a monthly basis, uh, on the first of the month, I put on my calendar journal review and I go through five different journals that I have access to and I look for articles that are interest to me. Um, I pull those articles and I read them and, and I actually share them. I've got, I've got a, a group of about 50 PTs that I, that I share all these articles with um, because I think it's important. You know, if you want to be up on sports medicine, you know, I, I, I had an orthopedic surgeon tell me, uh, he's a good friend of mine now, um, but when I first met him, you know, he took the call reluctantly um, and we sat on the call for about 30 minutes and he stopped me and he's like, you know what? He's like, I've never been on a call with a PT or, or had a conversation with a PT where they've literally cited 10 studies that I've never read because they were just published. And he's like, that's, that's, that's meaningful. That tells me that, you know, your stuff, right? So keeping up on the research to me is very important. 
Um, you know, we talk about evidence-based practice, et cetera. Just keeping in mind that, you know, um, just because it's not in the research does not mean that it's not so. You know, there's there's a, you know, fatigue. I'll give you that example. I keep going back to that because that's one of my pet peeves. You know, fatigue's not been proven in the research. I feel like it's because we've not figured out how to test it yet. Uh, and so just because something's not in the research doesn't mean that it's not so. Um, it's, you know, you, what you do is you, you use your clinical mindset plus the research to make good clinical decisions. So that would be the first and foremost for me. The other thing is too, is build your, build your own, not quite honestly, you know, um, I've talked to PTs all over the, all over the country and they say, well, you know, I, 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 in my market, I can't see ACLs because the orthopedic surgeons, they have their own PT and they, they, they own all the ACLs. So they, they see all the ACLs. That's just simply not true. It, if that's what you believe, that's going to be your reality. But if you want to certainly set yourself apart, you have to set yourself apart. And so you need to meaningfully go out there. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. When I first started in practice, I saw nothing but shoulders. All I saw was overhead athletes. I saw a lot of professional baseball players, college baseball players, AAA baseball players, that was the majority of my day was treating baseball players, overhead athletes for like the first three or four years. And then I really started getting into uh, ACLs and starting to do a little bit more research on that. And then uh, consciously about 14 years ago, I decided I was going to set myself apart and make myself the ACL guy. And so that's what I did. You know, I started doing a ton of research on ACLs. I started to change the way that I, I approached my ACLs. I started to develop better ways to evaluate my ACLs and um, really started on that, that the EMI really started 18 years ago, but really started to meaningfully look for technologies to develop it in an automated way and then teach people how to do it. You know, so I think, you know, um, build your own brand, gotcha. build your own brand, keep up on the research. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned about research um, in journal articles. You, you said you have a certain journals that you like. Could you mind sharing those kind of ones that you found that have been valuable? Yeah. yeah the uh, probably my go-to is the American Journal of Sports Medicine. I use Sport Health. I use uh, Journal of Athletic Training and uh, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Um, those are probably my my top four. And then obviously, you know, I, I'm spitter and spatter in, in, in others as well. But those are the four main ones that I typically go to um, because they, they typically have articles that are of interest to me in meaning that, you know, it's, it's stuff that I'm going to learn something from that's going to either prove or disprove the way I'm approaching things. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Now I want you to be able to help provide additional information yeah. for anyone listening to be able to go to that. Also one, I guess one word that's been kind of, around a lot recently is mentorship and the importance of mentors in helping yourself build that career and, and learn and grow. Did you have any mentors along the pro, like along the way? And if so, yeah. how did they, how did they help you? Yep. So my first mentor was Carl DeRosa, uh, who was the chairman of the PT department in Flagstaff. And um, I did volunteer work at Carl's clinic. I uh, got to know him and Marlene very well. Um, he was really kind of my first mentor. And when anything would go wrong in my, in, in my career, or I had a challenge or something like that, I would call him and he was always willing to call me back. 
you know, I don't know if I officially set up like a mentorship with him, but, but he was always the guy, like, I'll never forget when I, I had a, a big career change, uh, probably about 10 years ago, I had a big career change and I called Carl out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in like four or five years and I'll never forget him telling me, he's like, dude, he's like, people like you will end up on your feet. He's like, you don't stay down. He's like, don't worry. He's like, you know, you're, you're too good at what you do to not, to not end up in a good place. And that gave me a lot of comfort. My other mentor was a guy by the name of Steve Tobler. He was one of our regional managers and he was a phenomenal PT sports PT. And, uh, um, the thing that Steve always told me and always uh, ingrained in me, and I'll never forget the first time he told me, because he was sitting across from me at my desk uh, in my small clinic at that time. And he said, you know, you can only do what you can do. Just do the best that you can do. And that's all anybody can ever ask of you. As long as you do the best that you can do, that's all anybody can ever ask of you. And it's, you don't have to worry about trying anymore. And so that, that was really meaningful to me because, you know, I always felt like I was not doing enough. You know what I mean? Um, and, and even today, I think as an entrepreneur, that's the thing you struggle with. You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I'm 52 and I have a list of all this stuff I still want to do that I feel like I'm behind. Like, like, holy crap. Like I'm, I'm 10 years behind. Like I have so many more things that I need to do that I want to do that I have ideas for that I just don't have enough time to get it done. And I'm now it's like, oh my God, I got another maybe... 10, 15 years to get this stuff done. And I've already spent 18 years getting the first part done. And that list is a lot longer than what I've already accomplished. You know what I mean? And so I think that's part of this struggle as an entrepreneur is that you constantly feel like you're not, you're not there yet. That's my biggest challenge. And as a matter of fact, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine not too long ago. He's like, dude, you need to look back and see like what you've accomplished. I'm like, yeah, but the, there's all this. He's like, that's your problem is you keep looking forward. You don't look back. He's like, you need to see what you've done to feel that that's given you some accomplishment, but you're always looking at the stuff that you haven't accomplished. And I think that's a struggle as an entrepreneur. That's a, yeah. I mean, just uh, in my perspective as a student physical therapist, like seeing all the things that you've already done is like, just seems like a mountain for myself to be able to try to, to reach. And so like, yeah, that makes sense to, that you're so motivated to constantly progress and grow that you may have that, that mindset. But yeah, to me, I'm just like, to see how much you've done and help progress our field, especially in the sports world is amazing. So with that, you mentioned, I mean, from everything that we've talked about today, you're doing a lot of things. You're involved in a lot of different um, projects and opportunities. What have you learned as far as managing your time? If someone's really busy doing a lot of things, how have you, what have you learned throughout the, the time frame? Uh, what has helped you manage your time the best? First and foremost, get a spouse who will support you who will understand you, who will tolerate you. Um, you know, I've been very blessed. You know, my wife and I have been married for almost 30 years um, and she's tolerated me. She knows, she, she, she says all the time, I don't know what he's doing, but I know he's doing something, you know, because, because there is a lot of, you know, I, I'll give you an example, like this weekend, I'm teaching all weekend, you know? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of extra time that unfortunately sometimes takes away from family, you know, when you're trying to do something, something different, something bigger, you know? So um, I think first and foremost is, uh, you know, be with someone who can understand you, who can support you and, and, and walk along the path with you. 
you know, at the end of the day, my wife and I would not be where we're at had she not supported me. You know, I, I, I attribute a lot of what I've been able to do to her because she's been so supportive, you know, and, and that's, that, that to me is a huge part of it. The call, the balance of work and life is really hard for me, super hard for me. Um, because, because again, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly driven and, you know, what I'm trying to do, I'm doing better now as I get older, like in my, in my thirties and in my forties, you know, I would work seven days a week, you know, and it wasn't a big deal. You know, I didn't look at it as working, but the problem is, is that that takes away from everything else. And so there has to be a balance, you know, and I, and I think I've better, I've become better at making that balance, but that is a constant struggle is that work-life balance. As an entrepreneur, work will always, always kind of supersede if you are a true entrepreneur, because you're constantly driving for the next thing, you know, you're constantly driving to bring it to market. You're constantly, you know, and it takes time, it takes time and effort outside of your work job, you know, outside of your job job. I always tell people, this is my job job. And then I have my projects, you know? Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense as far as you haven't, you, with you doing so many things, sometimes you can't get so wrapped up in, so involved in it that it might lose that little bit of a balance and that, that juggling act to be able to adequately do that and manage the time is, is something that's really hard. I feel um, and with how much you're doing, it, it, it seems like a kill could be impossible at times, but no, that is, that is a great advice. Um, Hence I don't want to get 45. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. So I don't want to take up a lot of your time. I'm grateful. Yeah. Maybe we can have you on in the future and talk about more of your research and things that you guys are growing and progressing in. Um, but are there any important things that you'd like to say to those aspiring clinicians who want to become entrepreneurs in the field of PT and make an impact like you're having on a profession? You know, first and foremost um, is um, enjoy it. Enjoy life. You know, um, whatever you do, you, you got to be super passionate about it. Um, the people who are successful are passionate about whatever it is that they're doing. The reason that, um, you know, and, and if you've ever, you know, looked at any of my, my webinars or anything like that, you, hopefully you sense a, a sense of passion coming across from me because I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about driving our, our profession forward. So I think, you know, that's, that's really important. You have to enjoy life. You know, you can't let it, because if you let it overwhelm you, um, then it becomes a depressor, you know, in that, that you lose that passion for it. Um, don't be afraid to fail because failure is a part of being an entrepreneur. Constant failure. The difference is, is that your, your willingness to get up supersedes your failure. There's always one plus of getting up versus failure because the day that failure is one plus over getting up is the day you're done. And so don't be, don't be afraid to fail. And then I would also say, don't let the naysayers throw you aside. I cannot tell you how, you know, I can't tell you how many people said I would never get into PT school. I can't tell you how many people said that, um, you know, we would never be able to bring a movement assessment to market. Can't tell you how many people said that, you know, uh, we would never have an ACL prevention program to the market. Um, you know, don't let, I, they, they motivate me actually. They make me angry and it motivates me. And then I'm like, I'm going to show you, you know, so don't let the naysayers, you know, deter you from what you believe. And the final thing I would say is identify 
um, a market niche. Identify where there's a hole. You know, you know, with the EMI, identify a hole. And that is number one, uh, objective movement assessment, number one. And number two, return to sport. And that's part of the reason that we've moved it into the return to sport space. So, you know, identify that hole and then how do you fill that hole with, with something meaningful? That's perfect. Thank you so much for those words of advice. Um, and if anyone is interested in talking with you, what would be the best way to contact you? Um, could you give us some of your information? You also think you teach classes. Can you share a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, you know, I, I share a lot on social media. Um, if you go to my social media, my Instagram page, it's BJJPT underscore ACL guy. Um, and that's, you know, I, I post a lot of research on there. Um, when I'm doing courses, I post, I post stuff about the courses coming up on there. Um, you know, you can always uh, reach me via email. Uh, my email is T-N-E-S-S-L-E-R at just rebound, J-U-S-T-R-E-B-O-U-N-D.com. Uh, and that's my work email address. So, you know, they can always email me. Um, they can always direct message me through Instagram. You know, I'm, I'm very active on social media. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of ways to get a hold of me, obviously. With social media today, you know, you can't hide. Yeah, it makes it a lot more easy to connect yeah. with people. Um, but yeah, anything else that you'd like to add? I mean, I, well, I think what you shared is, is amazing, but is there anything else, any other thoughts you'd like to, to leave with us? The only thing I would say, JT, is kudos to you. I mean, dude, you got up at 4.30 in the morning to do this today, uh, which says a lot about you and the fact that you're putting together a podcast to help PTs become entrepreneurs. That's that's awesome. So, you know, just another great thing another NAU alum is due. So, Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, hopefully I can. Kudos to you. That's it's awesome. Thank you so much. But yeah, um, thanks, Trent, for coming on. And obviously, like, I'd love to have you back on the show. Maybe we'll talk more about the continuing progress that you're having and research that you're coming out with. Awesome. I look forward to it. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.